If you look near the right-hand end of High Table in the Hall of this College, you will find the curious portrait of an enigmatic-looking Elizabethan man, balding, with a reddish beard, dressed in black, with a ruff at the neck. It is, in fact, a copy commissioned by the Provost of a picture belonging to Trinity College, Oxford. In the uh, top corner appears the inscription, Anno Domini 1602, Aetatis Sua 32, the year of the Lord 1602, his age 32. It is almost the only picture in existence that can be conjectured to show Thomas Harriet, who was an undergraduate in Oxford in the late 16th century. Now, Harriet would have been 42 in 1602, so at first sight, the dates don't match. But the portrait, as we see it, is a copy of the state of the picture after it had been cleaned, and a photograph of the picture before cleaning does show the age of uh, 42, although X-ray analysis shows that at different times during its history, the picture has shown other ages, perhaps at one time 30, maybe 40. Um, so what are we to make of this? Perhaps, you know, we could hope that they might have got the age right at least the second time. Um, What's more telling, though, is that uh, the provenance of the picture at Trinity has very little at all to link it with Harriet. It is an Elizabethan picture. Yes, it's very nice, and I like it. It's been at Trinity for some time, but there is no known link between Harriet and Trinity, and no documents that explain how a picture of Harriet came to be at Trinity. So I think we're forced very reluctantly to conclude that this picture, the only known picture of uh, Thomas Harriet, actually shows someone else. Um, if the picture is illusory, then Harriet himself is elusive in another way, because although he was active as a mathematician and a scientist throughout his adult life, he published only one work during his lifetime, and that was more of a prospectus for a colony in the New World than a scientific treatise. Uh, nevertheless, he did leave behind him thousands of pages of manuscript notes that have survived and provide historians of science with a distinctive insight into the scientific world of the late 16th and early 17th century. Thomas Harriot was born in Oxfordshire in 1560 and entered the University of Oxford in 1577. At that time, Oxford colleges were rather smaller in both physical size and in the numbers of undergraduates than they are now, and most students did not aspire actually to be a member of a college at all, but instead joined an academic hall, such as St. Mary Hall, which occupied the land that now forms the third quad of Oriel. Um, it was absorbed into Oriel in 1902, just before the Rhodes Building was put up, and what was the chapel of St. Mary Hall has now become the junior library. If you look above you in the library, you'll see that it was once a chapel, and it was the chapel of this academic hall. So it was that Thomas Harriet matriculated in 1577, not as a member of Oriel, but as a member of St. Mary's Hall, where he remained until he graduated in 1580. Uh, during his time in Oxford, Harriet fell in with the geographer Richard Hacklett and the mathematician Thomas Allen, and it may be have been through them that he was introduced to Walter Rawley. Um, Rawley had matriculated in Oriel about ten years earlier, but apparently he never came into residence. Anyway, by 1583, Harriet was employed by Rawley in London. He was keeping accounts, he was assisting with the design of ships, but most crucially, he was ad advising um, Rawley on matters relating to navigation, and running a navigation school for the mariners employed on Raleigh's voyages. Um, it may be that Britain rules the waves, uh, but it, if, if it does so, it does so because British sailors know where they are. Um, yeah. um, now, an expedition of Raleigh's to the New World had brought back as captives or as guests, I think more likely the former, 
two Native Americans called Manteo and Wanchesi. Uh, they caused a sensation at court, but Rawley very sensibly sheltered them from becoming a kind of public spectacle. And Harriet um, spent a long time with them, very painstakingly learning their language. He invented one of the first phonetic alphabets in order to write down their language, and he recorded the information they could give him about um, conditions in America. Soon, Rawley formed a plan to establish a colony on Roanoke Island off the coast of what is now North Carolina, and Harriet became a kind of navigational, scientific, and linguistic consultant to the enterprise. He sailed with the expedition in 1585. The colony formed too late in the year to plant and harvest a crop, and it was only with the help of the surrounding natives, mediated by Harriet, that the colony was fed over the winter before being disbanded in a shambles um, the following year. It's this colony at Roanoke Island that led to the only work of Harriet's published during his lifetime, a brief and true report of the newfound land of Virginia, which was published in 1588. This pamphlet praises the fertility of the Virginian soil, catalogues the many crops that can be found growing there, and describes the way of life of the natives. It also <laughs> contains a hymn of praise to the virtues of tobacco. The leaves thereof being dried and brought into powder, they use it to take the fume or smoke thereof by sucking it through pipes made of clay into their stomach and head, from whence it purges superfluous phlegm and other gross humours, openeth all the pores and passages of the body, whereby their bodies are notably preserved in health and know not many grievous diseases, wherewithal we in England are oftentimes afflicted. I think we should bear this passage in mind as we consider the college's investment policy in the future. <laughs> Back in England, Harriet returned to the support of his patrons, first Rawley, and then as his star waned at court, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Uh, supported by a pension and given the use of a house in London, Harriet had the luxury of pursuing his scientific studies in whatever direction he chose. Um, I have time only to mention a handful of the many achievements that he made during this time. He investigated polynomial equations and found rules that determine how many solutions an equation has, advancing the study of algebra in crucial ways, and more trivially, also inventing the signs for less than or, and greater than that are used today. He studied map projections and was able to solve the problem of laying out um, a map in the style of Mercator so that it could be used properly for uh, navigation. The problem is one that a first-year student today can solve with um, integration and logarithms. And in fact, it's on your problem sheet for next week. Um, <laughs> But um, neither integration nor logarithms had been invented in Harriet's time. Neither had the decimal point. So if you try to read his manuscript calculations, they are completely impenetrable because you have no idea what these numbers are. Um, I'm sure he did at the time. Um, uh, the tables of data that are needed to lay out Mercator's map so that it can be used to navigate accurately over long distances by compass bearings uh, were laboriously calculated by Harriet. And they remained for centuries afterwards the best available data for navigation. Um, the methods he used to take numbers that are only slightly bigger than one and raise them to immense powers um, are in fact still used today in computer cryptography. So if you want to go about saying that the first Oxford computer scientist was in this college, then I'm not going to object to that at all. Um, Harriet was the first person to draw a map of the moon as seen through a telescope, beating... Galileo, by six months, he invented binary arithmetic one afternoon uh, when he was doing a chemical experiment and noticed that he could use the one, two, four, and eight ounce weights 
that he was using for the experiments to do addition and subtraction, and wondered if he could do multiplication in binary two. Leibniz would rediscover this 50 years later. He studied lenses, and in 1602, he formulated what we now know as Snell's law of refraction. Um, Snell discovered it independently in 1621, but he didn't publish it either, leaving Descartes to rediscover it and write about it in the Discourse of Method in 1637. Uh, in point of fact, the principle had been discovered and written down by an Arab astronomy in 984 and then forgotten for six centuries. So priority in science is never simple. And it usually turns out that if somebody has some principle has somebody's name on it, then they didn't invent it. So these and many other achievements of Harriet deserve a much fuller account than I can give you this evening. But some flavour of the breadth and depth of Harriet scholarship can be gained from 20 years of annual lectures on Harriet that have been given in this college. And they've, they've been collected into two very handsome volumes by uh, Professor Robert Fox. Now, in Elizabethan England, doubting the Protestant religion was tantamount to treason. So, if you had enemies, it was expedient for them to suggest that um, you were, if not actually Catholic, then at least atheistical. And uh, the enemies of both Rawley and later of Henry Percy um, tried to suggest this, lending weight to the suggestion by observing that they had at different times employed and supported this curious character, Harriet, who was interested in reviving the atomic theory of the ancients, long associated with atheism. It didn't help that Harriet also dabbled in alchemy and that he was known occasionally to cast horoscopes. So for these and other reasons, a reputation for atheism attached itself to Harriet, and it would actually persist for many uh, centuries even after his death. So if you think, want to think about the atomic theory, it's important not to confuse the classical atomism that uh, Harriet and others were trying to revive with our modern idea of what an atom is. For the ancients, atoms were a metaphysical idea rather than a scientific one. So for Harriet and his contemporaries, they did start to have a kind of predictive character, and Harriet did try to explain the refraction of light on an atomic basis. But for the ancients, atoms were indivisible and immutable, the smallest units of a substance that shared all the properties of the bodies that they made up. So there was no idea of a chemical compound made up of different atoms, nor was this the idea that substances could change by chemical reactions. So all this makes the ancient idea of atoms share some of the characteristics of, of molecules in, in modern science, but also the characteristics of elementary particles. I suppose there are two reasons, really, beyond mere tradition, why you should see atomism as being associated with atheism. One is that if all motion is just atoms moving in the void on predictable paths, then there's no possibility of free will or divine intervention in the world. Uh, rather charmingly, Epicurus tried to avoid this problem by supposing that the atoms did go along determinate paths, but sometimes they could swerve a little, and uh, this is how they could be affected by the will of God or man. Rather more important, actually, is the idea that if atoms are indivisible and immutable, then God would not be able to cause the changes needed to create the world from nothing. Much controversy surrounds the question whether Harriet repeated the ancient formula ex nihilo nihil fit, from nothing is nothing made, or if he did what he meant by it. Um, interestingly, the new atheists are willing to say that the universe can spring from nothing without, of course, the need for a creator, but we should notice that their nothing is the new quantum mechanical nothing, which is uh, actually uh, not nothing at all. Um, 
So these themes in the perceived conflict between science and religion, um, whether divine intervention is possible, whether the world needs a creator or could have one, there's not some new feature of modern thought, but actually have a history that stretches back through Elizabethan times to classical antiquity. So if we can't rely on reputation to decide about Harriet's faith or lack of it, we should look instead at his writings. The papers that Harriet left behind are largely scientific notes, and they provide, if anything, only very mild evidence of a conventional Christian belief. Um, but there is some evidence of interest by him in specific theological questions that may have been prompted by his pa patrons. He's known to have prepared a brief for Rawley's treason trial concerning the rules of testimony in the Hebrew Bible. I think we can deduce a little more from the attitudes Harriet reveals in his one published work, his brief and true report, where he shows what I think is a remarkable respect for Native American culture and belief, and a desire to view the natives of as believing, above all, in one supreme God, although they did believe in other lesser gods as well. He wanted to view the fertility of the American soil as reflecting somehow an unfallen state of the country and of its inhabitants. Um, apparently, Harriet would read to his native friends from the Bible, translating it into their language as he read, and believing that they would naturally come to embrace the gospel. More evidence still about uh, Harriet's belief comes from his long and excruciating final illness. A small red spot appeared on his nose in 1616, and this gradually changed into a cancerous growth, and more likely than not caused by his heavy use of tobacco. Um, this makes Harriet surely among the first Europeans to die from a smoking-related disease. Despite the best medical attention, uh, Harriet suffered greatly and he lingered in great discomfort until 1621. A letter survives from Harriet to his doctor, de Mayen, in which Harriet expresses his confidence in God's providence and in the physician as God's minister. And last of all, we have Harriet's will, which he composed three days before he died in some pain. And that will begins as follows. I commit my soul into the hands of Almighty God, my maker, and of his son, Jesus Christ, my redeemer, of whose merits by his grace wrought in me by the Holy Ghost. I doubt not, but that I am made partaker, to the end that I may enjoy the kingdom of heaven, prepared for the elect.